This week, a lecture about how the end of the Cold War impacted American youth culture in the 1990s. As I've been thinking about the last part of the 20th century, the 1990s, I think, makes sense to really dig into in terms of how people thought about the future in culture, in popular culture, as well as in politics. Coming up more with Evergreen State College professor Bradley Proctor. Okay, so what we are talking about today is picking up where we left off on Thursday with the end of the Cold War. And also, I'm trying to make sure that we stitch different themes that we've had through the quarter and through both quarters together. Um, the program is titled America to 2025, so some thinking about the future is important. And as I've been thinking about the last part of the 20th century, the 1990s, I think, makes sense to really dig into in terms of how people thought about the future in culture, in popular culture, as well as in politics. So the themes and overviews that I want to talk about in terms of this um, do a little bit of looking back, looking forward. Um, and then they're kind of going to be two halves of the lecture um, linked to kind of politics and linked to pop culture. So I want to talk about the end of the Cold War and especially how it manifested in how Americans thought about politics. Then I want to talk about pop culture and think about um, the, the way the 90s thought about the future and thought about the present even in terms of like everything is great or everything is terrible. Um, the future will be wonderful or the future is going to be awful. Um, adding here that... Um, uh, as with all of my lectures, I'm not going for compre like comprehensive coverage, um, but especially asking people to think about change over time and then like how does ideology, how does youth culture, how does systems of power change over time? So there's going to be, I think, asking you all to think about um, how the 90s were actually quite different than today. Um, and I've got some examples that I think will be interesting. Oops. Um, in terms of looking forward, looking back, um, a reminder how we're combining psychology and history. Um, uh, it's an interdisciplinary program, so I'm not going to be talking much about psychology. That's my co-teacher Nathalie's job. Um, but thinking about how the disciplines have different orientations. Um, and I've really been thinking a lot, and we're going to talk about this um, in the afternoon. Um, we kind of stumbled last week on experiments and how, like, history can't do experiments. And, like, there's no there's, like, Historical research is not grounded in the ability to ask people different questions about the experiences they lived through in the moment. We can do it with oral history, but like contemporaneous documents can't be changed. Um, so that's structuring a little bit of my thinking. I'm not going to talk too much about that this morning, but definitely this afternoon. Um, and then this is also a chance to return to things where we began really week one, week two, week three in fall quarter um, about national identity um, because of how like developmental and adolescent psych is all about change, is all about development, um, how modernity has kind of posited the nation state as, um, as an individual, as a person, or as a family, which we read um, all in the family, um, and just, yeah, development and adolescence and youth culture. Okay, questions about where we are? Everybody, is this making sense? Sound familiar? Okay. All right. Okay, so I talked some on Thursday about the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, 
I remember someone, uh, and I forget who it was, was sort of like, oh, now I fully get how the idea of um, uh, from Generation Disaster, um, the, the reading we had, how a certain group of people um, would have grown up in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War with really triumphant kind of like, yay, America, America has done it sort of thinking. Um, so we, we thought some about like the, the kind of national narrative of triumph. Um, I really also want to um, focus not only on the end of the Cold War as a national triumph, but um, in a sort of like us versus them, but really go into the ideological triumph, the idea that um, the promise of liberal Western democracy and capitalism has triumphed internationally. Um, So some of this is like these little... um, uh, post-formal thought, two different things at once we're asking you to think about. Um, uh, national politics and ideology, and then youth culture. So it's not like teenagers, we're going to, um, I'm going to give some like geopolitical stuff that teenagers wouldn't have been thinking much about. Um, but I think there's something shared in the ethos. Um, so we're going real like nation, state, and national ideology. And particularly around capitalism um, and just elevating stuff that you all said in our seminar for week seven. Um, In week seven, we were uh, reading about like international consumerism. Do people remember that? Like international consumerism? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Girl Scouts, that that Girl Scouts uh, national, international reading. And one of the things that you all said in seminar was the idea that like capitalism never ends. That with consumer culture, um, especially a like tech-centered youth consumer culture, and remember Sony Walkman 1980, it's like, oh, new stuff is always demonstrating the superiority of capitalism. Like as long as there's new stuff to consume, capitalism is obviously dominant. And so like that is, um, that was very much a shared idea. Um, And so saying that like the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, were seen geopolitically as, like, success. The evil empire has been defeated. But then also a little bit of, like, everything is great um, with not just, um, like, national conflict, but, like, our ideology about consumer capitalism has been, um, uh, has been triumphant. Um, so just really like um, hitting 1989, fall of the Berlin Wall, um, Vermeulen in Generation Disaster points 1989 as the like the starting point. There's a whole section in the introduction. Do people remember that about like why 1989 is important? Um, <clears throat> and 1989 like came up a lot in some of the stuff I was looking at as well. Um, so the cultural dominance of capitalism here, um, even like tended to um, uh, span the political spectrum um, in the United States. So both folks on the right and folks on the left tended to, in some ways, um, uh, see capitalism having been validated. And um, so just like things that might have been coded as negative or were coded as negative, like deindustrialization, the decline of factories, um, were often framed or understood in a sort of like, oh, 
the world is coming together. The world is shrinking. Um, technology is connecting us. Um, the tech boom of the 1990s, the um, real flourishing of Silicon Valley and um, the dot-com bubble was not seen as a bubble. It was seen as like, oh, technology is causing unprecedented economic growth. So the 1990s saw like government surpluses, booming economy, right? Uh, turns out the wages were stagnant, but it seemed like wages were rising. It seemed like... Um, you know, technology was going to solve, solve more or less every single problem. Um, <clears throat> there were currents of opposition, and this is an area where, like, thinking about change over time is possible. Um, like, looking through the evergreen newspapers of the 1980s and 1990s, there were um, lots of examples of people being, like, not entirely on board with things or... The system seemed, seems fractured, but um, nothing in the 1990s happened in the same way that, um, like, in 2000, Seattle were World Trade Organization protests. I don't know if people are familiar with this, that there were big riots against the meeting of the WTO in Seattle, Starbucks windows got smashed, and then the national media coverage of it was like, how did this happen? Why are people angry at Starbucks? Where did this come from? So there were currents in the 90s that, like, exploded in the 2000s. But since 2000, I mean, there was the 2008, 2010 Occupy movement, um, the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign, just real centerings of critiques of capitalism across the political spectrum exist now that definitely didn't exist in the 1990s. Nick? Uh, wages seem to be rising, but actually weren't. Was that related to inflation? Um, no, see, um, it, everyone was kind of like, oh, look, we fixed inflation. There isn't much of a problem. Um, uh, the, the idea was that even though economics would later see a, like, stagnant wage growth, um, like, the media was uh, covering stories. I mean, I will say, I was a, col- uh, no, I was, I was a high school student in the, in the late 1990s, and there was a time when Burger King was offering $3,000 signing bonuses. Yeah. So there was this idea, signing bonus for working at Burger King, summer of 1998. Three grand for signing a contract saying, I'll work for you. Yes. Fast food jobs. I know it seems like I'm incredulous, but I'm I'm, I'm shocked. This this is actually, um, there are things like this in our economy right now. um, uh, That like, there's, there are a lot of, entry-level jobs that are offering big paychecks to begin, and people are framing it as the great resignation. People are, like, leaving their job. How many of you have, like, left a job and started a new one for better wages in the last couple of months? Right. Um, there was another. Matthew had a question. Uh, so at what, what point, again, did uh, this whole, uh, oh, what was it called? The CL World uh, Trade... Yeah, World uh, Trade Organization. World yeah. Trade Organization protests started. Was it in the late 90s or early 2000s? That's one thing that I don't actually know about the like specific groups that protested. They all existed before, but there was like some meeting in the summer of 2000 that um, protests turned into um, you know direct action uh, of people smashing windows against globalization against the kind of um, sort of uh, international um, 
you know, unfettered capitalism. And this uh, happened, did just happen in Seattle or did it happen in other cities like, all across the country? International opposition, but it was the meeting was in Seattle. And so like the event was only in Seattle and it was covered as if it was just Seattle. And there was lots of like media coverage that was like, what's going on? Why are, why are, why are these kids breaking windows? Hannah. Last week you talked about how like the shared memory of the Cold War was like an ideological capitalism versus um, capitalism versus communism. Is that the reason that like the afterwards the triumph was also ideological, even though that was like a reductive view? Yes, I think so. Uh, you're asking like um, the idea that it was triumphant was ideological. Um, thought of the war as yeah. ideological between capitalism versus communism. Exactly, exactly. If there is a victory, there has been a struggle. One side has been defeated. We're, we're, we're going to look at some stuff that grounds this in like actual text, but Spencer. Yeah, I think I, think I understand. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to... Uh... I think I'm good. I'm going to chew. It's a lot of complex thinking. I think I'm just going to chew the fat. I think. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. Um, <clears throat> okay. Two, two, two things to um, um, maybe three things to, to kind of ground this before then moving to the next thing. Just about like how there was a kind of um, across the political spectrum the way that, like, the WTO protests or the Occupy movement were really, like, capitalism terrible and, and needs to be um, not just reformed but changed, that was really absent in the, in the 1990s, and I want to illustrate that in a couple of ways. Um, re- things that we've, we've thought about. So um, if you remember, um, queer activism in the 1970s was very much about, like, um, discri- anti-discrimination in jobs, and kind of like whole political inclusion, and there was lots of like, we need to get more um, uh, gay activists elected to political office. It was very, 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 very political. 1980s, 1990s, the AIDS epidemic totally changed queer activism to be very much like people are dying. So the idea that like the system was rigged was a political one, but it was not a like intersectional, radical, like, queer identity can lead to a different kind of capitalism, which did exist in the 1970s and maybe kind of exists some on, like, Tumblr today. Um, So, like, queer activism. Um, The civil rights movement, I think this, Hannah, this might answer your question. Um, Remember how, like, radical the critique of the civil rights movement in the long civil rights movement framing was? Like, March for Jobs and Freedoms, Not Just I Have a Dream... Um, most activists felt that post-Voting Rights Act, 1967, 1968, 1969, that the movement had kind of failed in lots of substantive ways. Um, the, the, um, uh, the Poor People's Campaign by Martin Luther King before his assassination and then after his assassination, seen as like didn't accomplish goals, it kind of fell apart. So hardcore activists that had a like really... Um, intertwined critique of politics, of economics, um, felt that like the movement had fallen apart and the 70s were a time of great declension. Contrast that with the national triumph, right? Like how did many Americans were kind of like, hey, we solved the racism problem. Segregation is gone. And 
kind of full inclusion, regardless of race, is now not just possible but happening. So there's this real, like, oh, we've triumphed. If capitalism has triumphed, then, oh, the more radical critiques don't need to be listened to. Um, so there's a um, British-Jamaican theorist, Stuart Hall. Have we talked about Stuart Hall? I feel like he's come up in some of our readings. Um, does lots of cultural critique. Is sociologist um, and... Um, I don't know if we'd put him in the post-structuralist school. Um, he, he has said that the 1970s, 1980s, and then the 1990s, um, globally, uh, the left increasingly engaged in questions of identity inclusion instead of critiques of capitalism. That there's a certain kind of identity politics that is all about like who is in the system, who's not in the system, not the system is rigged and needs to be overthrown or taken apart. So, like, who is involved, who is not involved is a different question of, like, how just are our systems? Is this making sense? Is that kind of tracking? Um, on the right, as well, um, uh, kind of American conservatives also, to a certain extent, felt that American capitalism was obviously dominant, it was triumphant, and there wasn't a lot of, like, um, we need to teach people how great capitalism is, or um, there, there was, like, rah, rah, yay, America. But the main strand in, um, of, like, grassroots activism in the 1980s, and then it carried on to the 1990s, it's all about family values and morality. You remember the um, All in the Family reading. It starts with Dan Quayle, vice president under George H.W. Bush, saying, like, we now have to center family values. Evangelical Christians formally entered politics in ways that, like, most evangelical Christians throughout, like, throughout the United States had a very tenuous relationship with politics because that's the world of, like, Caesar. That's, that's the world. That is not the sacred world. That's the secular world. 1979, Jerry Falwell forms an organization called the Moral Majority. Lots of American evangelicals begin saying that, like, politics is an area for morality, um, for encouraging family values. So it's, like, not linked to the whole, you know, communism is bad, but there's a certain bit with, like, we've won, now we've just got to, like, keep these kids from getting perverted um, and... and um, becoming immoral. Okay, so Hannah, does that help kind of make sense about the ideology? It's kind of like the, the shared thing. So the most um, important, or the, the, the example that everyone points to um, as like the ideological expression of this idea is an essay by um, an economist, Francis Fukuyama, called The End of History. Have people heard of, how many people have heard of The End of History and Francis Fukuyama, show of hands? But it's one of those things where I'm honest, like if you put a gun to my head or like, have you heard of the end of history uh, paper by Francis uh, Fukuyama? I'd be like, I've heard of the end of history. I don't know who this person is or this essay. <laughs> <laughs> so like familiar. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate that in a little bit. Um, so Fukuyama was a scholar. Um, uh, he wrote an article in a publication called The National Interest. A couple of years later, turned the article into a book. Um, uh, Lots of people look back on it, and um, uh, I've seen conversations about how, like, Fukuyama's 
argument is more sophisticated than people think of it. Um, and it's going to seem, the, the outline of it might seem a little silly based on what happened next in the world. Um, I think it's important to think of it as like descriptive of how people thought as opposed to Fukuyama saying, this is how things are. It's more like this is, this is the ethos right now. Um, so the poll quote I have here, um, the triumph of the West, of the Western idea, is evident, first of all, in the total exhaustion of vi- viable systematic alternatives to Western liberalism. So fall the Berlin Wall, that summer, it's like the triumph of the West is evident. Um, so I'll, I'll, even, I'll even call up. Um, and I'll link this on Canvas so people can read it in totality, that this, this is like the very beginning of it. Like, here it is on JSTOR, the very beginning. In watching the flow of events over the past decade or so, it is hard to avoid the feeling that something very fundamental has happened in world history. The past year has seen a flood of argument, articles commemorating the end of the Cold War and the fact that peace in quotes, seems to be breaking out in many regions of the world. It's interesting. It's like, so, uh, peace is in quotation marks because the idea that the Cold War didn't have much conflict, which we talked about how, like, how much conflict there was last week. Most of these analysis lack any larger conceptual framework for distinguishing between what is essential and what is contingent or accidental in world history and are predictably superficial. So... Um, here, this paragraph, he does some of his definition, de- like defining and, and kind of background and context. And then here's the poll quote. The triumph of the West of the Western idea is evident, first of all, in the total exhaustion of viable systematic alternatives to Western liberalism. So, like, with the fall of communism, there are no alternatives to Western liberalism. Like, this is it. Hannah. There's a relationship between capitalism and Western liberalism in this use of it. In this, they're, 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 they're completely intertwined. Um, so here, here's he said, like, this paragraph, or this sentence. Um, but the century that began full of self-confidence in the ultimate triumph of Western liberal democracy, so 1900, self-confidence that ultimately Western liberal democracy would triumph over monarchy, he, he says, and then totalitarian and absolutism. Um, at its close, seems to be turning full circle to where it started, not to an end of ideology or as a convergence between capitalism and socialism, but to an unabashed victory of economic and political liberalism. Economic and political liberalism. So Fukuyama is defining that. Like, yeah, there is economic liberalism, there's political liberalism, but all of these are wrapped up into one. Um, yeah, yeah. Chewing the fat yeah. and not breaking my teeth. So I, basically, I'm getting kind of a. a I'm, I'm reminded of this video. Say, uh, they were basically kind of an attitude of almost like, if you don't uh, like, if you aren't like, hoorah, America, uh, capitalism's great. Uh, it it feels like there's almost like a uh, like confusing part where it's like, oh, but like we won. What are you talking about? Like. Yeah, like, like the idea of like, like just that line of, uh, oh, there's no like large systematic like thing thing. With, basically, in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, like people exist outside of like America and like, like people exist in the foothills of God knows where, just 
living in existence things. So, like people exist and stuff. So basically, I, I, I get I get the feeling it's it's very like a like uh, we've won, we've done the good, we're prosperous, blah blah blah. And then criticism comes up, and there's kind of a thing of like, oh, like what, like a dirty communist living in the in the hills or something. Like there's. A, I, d- I don't know. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or what you were kind of suggesting earlier, it's almost like, um, what is the criticism? Or like, uh, there's no need to respond to the criticism. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, we've won. What do you... Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's self-evident on the... Like, so it's evident. It's evident. Like, boom, we won. And then the very next sentence, in the past decade, there have been unmistakable changes in the intellectual climate of the world's two largest communist countries and the beginnings of significant reform movements in both. So it's meaning the Soviet Union slash Russia and China. Um, so, like, even the communist bastions are now embracing a kind of economic liberalism. So it's not, it, it's, it's no longer even, a, like, an ideological conflict anymore. Nick? I wasn't alive throughout most of the 90s, but I imagine, what, what do you feel like at this point in time experiencing world politics? Did you feel like there was an inevitable march towards Western liberalism? Um... I think you'll see it. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's why I want to turn to pop culture. Yeah. Was this shared by uh, like minorities that were actively experiencing the like exploitative, oppressive nature of capitalism? Um, was this shared by them, or were were they just invalidated by by this idea that success had been met? I'm going to let that question percolate. I'm not going to answer that. I think we'll 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 see a little bit of it. We'll we'll we'll. It, it'll come up, but I mean, that, that is a question about like who matters in ideological frameworks and who doesn't. So um, this, um, I, didn't, I didn't copy all of it, but um, uh, this whole journal, um, Fukuyama's was the first article, and then there were massive responses from people who were really, really prominent, including um, the Democratic Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Um, who created the Moynihan Report. Um, we read some about the Moynihan Report in um, Not Straight, Not White, um, pathologizing kind of queer blackness. Uh, so the Moynihan Report was all about, like, why are black families falling apart? It must be something pathological about, about the family. So um, there was, like, across the political spectrum response, but it really... Um, the kind of media, co- popular and academic media coverage wasn't much listening. And there's a little bit of like, how did the 2000s highlight exactly what you asked? Like, uh, gay, like white gay men, and I guess lesbians too, but uh, so like white gay men becoming like very capitalized. Like I remember when I was a kid, the gay material stuff was more like Perverted isn't the word I'm looking for, but you know, it, it was it was a uh, spooky. It wasn't like nor- normalized. It was communism to uh, to heteronormativity, whatever. But like, it, it feels like it, uh, God. I, I know there's a connection, there, but like, uh, like other, uh, queer a lot of queer people will criticize spooky white gay men because there's basically this thing of like, like we're advertised to be like uh, mortgages and cars and stuff. Like if you read Pride magazine. It, it, it's like a straight suburban kind of ad thing and like gay vacations. Yes. And so it kind of feels like it, it's kind of creation. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, that's what I was trying to suggest about like where activism went. It went to HIV AIDS and then it went to marriage equality, especially when like um, 
uh, the, Bush, the second Bush administration in the 2000s began um, and, and state governments began outlawing gay marriage. And marriage became a real battleground. And then the Obergefell decision, uh, 2014, legalizing gay marriage, um, there were like NPR reports where it was like, this gay organization that had advocated for marriage equality forever, what's it going to do now? And it's like, oh, we're going to disband. Because uh, like, it has been achieved. Um, so, like, full inclu- so this is about like, a certain kind of identity-based politics being all about inclusion as opposed to systematic critique. Yes, 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 because, because capitalism is triumphant. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because capitalism is triumphant, why would there be any alternative is the mindset. Okay, I am tuned with that. Yes. It's like you have equal access to participate in capitalism. Yes. Okay. Yes, full equal access to, to participate. So, yeah, you can compete on anyone's ground, on anyone's terms. Yeah, Matthew. So, um, from what I'm understanding, capitalism is like, or like, Oh, with uh, gay marriage, did I just hear that with gay marriage that legalized, uh, the gay community is uh, can uh, engage in capitalism. S- sort of. It, um, it it's it's more that like um, as opposed to like thoroughly connected critiques of all parts of a society that would marginalize and exclude people. It's not about like full, like a whole, you know, a, a, a society that is wrapped up in excluding and marginalizing some people. The critique of that falls away when you get included. Okay. So when you, when you can have the uh, two kids, white picket fence, golden retriever, um, despite being a same-sex couple, um, you can have your television set, you can live in suburbia. Um, why would you have a more interconnected critique? Is that, is that making sense? Yeah, I think so. Online. But wouldn't the, the critique be considered invalid because if your group um, gains inclusion um, while others remain excluded then there still is not inclusion. Even though you feel like you're on one side of it, inclusion does not exist unless everyone's included. Yes, and so th- this is a, a tension in a, lot of, um, in a lot of social movements and in a lot of, um, yeah, groups that advocate for equality is like, is it about us or is it about everyone? And so there are lots of things about, you know, as, as long as one person is, none of us are free as long as one of us is in chains. That's a critique of, that is directly interacting with, with that other more superficial critique. That's what I was asking. Yeah, so, and, and, and so I want to I make clear that there were lots and lots of people, and this is why things like the protests of the World Trade Organization pop up in 2000, because there are lots of people that are like, no, 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 this isn't enough. The dominant ideology is not including the radical critique that we have. More change has to happen. Aria? I'm curious what intersectionalism looked like at the time in relation to that then. Yes. I mean, this is all. 1989 is... Someone needs to help me find when Patricia Hill Collins' All in the Family was written. What's the date of that? But it is after Kimberly Crenshaw's article that we read. It is after Bell Hooks's um, um, 
Oh, what was the name of the book we read from Bell Hooks? Um, what was that? Feminist theory, right. It's after that. So, like, um, it, the Kambahi River Collective was in the 1970s. So there was lots of, like, widespread activist and intellectual critique of it. It just wasn't finding purchase in, like, mainstream politics. Like, kind of, like, ivory tower, like, all these people, they only talk about uh, intersectionalism, like, in the academic thing, but, like, on the street, man, people aren't, or... It's so weird to talk about history, about something that I was technically alive for half the decade. <laughs> That's been your question all along. Like, how do we do this? Yeah, no, it's hard. It, I'm, I'm doing it, but... Yeah. Can we talk about bell hooks and Crenshaw having, uh, like, how social activism made it so they were able to go to school to produce and publish these pieces? Was the idea, oh, like, they can publish the piece so we don't really have to, like, do anything with it. There's enough, uh, like, progress achieved because they can at least do it, but the critique wasn't, like, fully considered or or actualized until later, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it does. And I don't, know how, I don't know how often people articulated it in that way. Um, I don't know how often that was subconscious. Um, we'd really have to, the, the way to answer that question is to look into, like, how did mainstream organizations respond to critiques that they weren't, you know, actually radical? That's where we would see that. Okay, I want to talk one more thing about... Uh, Two more things about the end of history, and then I'm going to come back to something that's really going to illustrate this. So the reason Fukuyama describes it as the end of history, um, and this is the thing that like, I think um, is the, like, whoa, this seems really superficial, is his, um, what's the term, operational definition of history? That according to Fukuyama, history is a Hegelian struggle, you know, a dialectical struggle between two opposing forces, that history is best understood as there are always kind of two forces fighting, and through all of the 20th century, it's been liberal democracy and liberal economics versus authoritarianism and communism. There's been this struggle, that, and that has produced history. In the conflict comes history. Two poles, conflict generates history. What happens when one of those is gone? It's the end of history. There no longer is any history happening. Um, <clears throat> Another, um, uh, I'm not certain I'm setting this up in the right timeline, but um, Thomas Friedman in a book, um, oh, I know I have the name of it. Oh, it's about, it's something like the olive tree. Um, Tom Friedman in the 1990s, he writes for the New York Times. Um, he, He wrote a book where he posited that no two countries that both had McDonald's had ever gone to war with each other. At the time he wrote it, he was wrong. Um, the U.S. had, like, invaded Panama. Both of those had McDonald's. Um, but since the 1990s, through the 1990s, into the 2000s, there's been more and more evidence of, like, oh, liberal economics and liberal democracy doesn't mean that there won't be conflict. But at the time, there was this, like, widespread shared idea that there was. So... Um, I want to talk about the legacy, and then I want to move on to the, um, uh, the, the response of the left to just really kind of... So I, and this is going to, to Spencer's thing about, I've heard of it, but I don't have... A, if you had a gun to my head. So I just was like, where is the end of history in the Evergreen Library catalog? I, I was just legitimately looking for the book to see if we had an e-book of it. Um, but then I was like, this is really fascinating. So just 
pay some attention to the topics that people use for, can folks see it? Can folks see the book titles? So this is the book 1992 um, uh, that Fukuyama turned the article into, The End of History and the Last Man. But then, date, 2000, The Curious Fate of American Materialism. Do folks remember Derrida? From Mohammed to bin Laden, really a source for this homicide bomber phenomenon. Liberation theology after this. The shape of the signifier, 1967 to the end of history. So, like, we spent so much time on postmodernism. <clears throat> American fiction in the 1990s after the end. And then I just thought this was like, oh, this is kind of our program, right? The marketplace utopia and the fragmentation of an intellectual life. It's just really getting back to these ideas of utopias. Is this connecting with people? It's like this is American utopian thinking. History is is over. We've solved all conflict. Yeah, Hannah. If we ever pursue the future, is that part of the argument? Probably. Yeah, like what, what, what would af- I guess my question is like what is after history is I think that's what like people in the nineties were grappling with. Okay, so anyway, the legacy I thought was really interesting. Um and then this is trying to really nail home um the the way that the like mainstream American political left was kind of put in a vice by the end of the Cold War. Oh, sorry, Matthew. Yeah. Just real quickly, what was uh, the full name of uh, Fukuyama's book? Uh, the End of History and the Last Man. The Last Man. Okay, thank you. Which also, like, I mean, we could take 15 minutes just talking about that, right? The last man? Why is it just a man? Why is it not last human? Uh, what about gender is in there? Why does there have to be a last man? Um, how, look, uh, and like academic or historic things just to mean people, like all men are created equal that it honestly didn't occur. And since this is technically 20th century, it did not occur to me that man would be a gendered option. I was just like, <laughs> ah, old timey English. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but then also how um, the article has a question mark and the book doesn't. Um, I, I, people are returning to, to, to Fukuyama's uh, book. I've, I've seen conversations about how there's, there's a lot smart in it, it but you know, it really is a... It was understood at the time as, um, yay, we've won, now what? Um, but... There's going to be no conflict. Eventually, the world's going to come at peace. Very utopian thinking about where things are going. At the same time, um, it's like utopian about where things are going. This is an article, and I was just browsing through the journal. Um, that the, so this, um, you know, uh, national interest. So this is national interest. Same issue, a couple, couple pages later. And I do not know who Alan Tonelson is. I did not look him up. Um, but he writes this manifesto for Democrats. So the Cold War, um, what should Democrats do? Um, and the answer is a complete overhaul in their foreign policy thing. And the, uh, he goes up here and he talks about um, 
party has lost the White House in five of its last six tries, that Michael Dukakis's 10-state hall was an encouraging showing. The Democratic Party needs all the help it can get. So what should they do? Abandon internationalism. Abandon the no longer affordable strategy of grounding American security and prosperity in a congenial world environment. Instead, the party needs an approach that emphasizes the restoration of military and economic strength, that is more discriminating about foreign policy commitments and more willing to use force unilaterally to secure important interests, that advocates tougher trade policies, seeks greater self-sufficiency, a new nationalism. So like in the same time where it's like, we've won, what needs to happen? What should the left do? Get tougher. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I link it there. This, this is a time to talk just a little bit briefly about Bill Clinton um, and Bill Clinton's utopian thinking. So Bill Clinton in 1992, his campaign song was Fleetwood's Max, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. Yesterday's gone, yesterday's gone, don't start thinking about tomorrow. Like, Bill Clinton was this, like, really charismatic figure that was very much like, the future is bright. He came from a town called Hope, Arkansas. So he was the boy from Hope, literally the boy from Hope. Like, the future is bright. And in all of his State of the Unions, he always, which were always very long, um, he always would discuss, like, what new technological achievements are happening um, you know, what are the, break, the tech breakthroughs that are going to make our life and our society better? His policy, um, um, uh, he and many people like him dubbed themselves third-way Democrats. Um, that in this maps onto the old end of history framework, too, that the Democratic Party um, had been the party of, like, the left and critiques of capitalism, um, supposedly, um, but just the, the, uh, this real, like, that there were only two sides of the culture wars. There were only two sides of the economic wars. The party of, of Johnson and the Great Society um, was no longer viable. So the uh, third way needed to be found, which is like, we need to reform some of these systems. And we need to do things like welfare reform. There are too many people on welfare. And we're too soft on crime. There need to be crime bills, increased mandatory sentencing requirements, Three strikes in, you're out. Um, so it, it was the Democratic Party in the 1990s that actually got, quote-unquote, tougher on a lot of issues. Um, so I think this is like, I hope, that, is this connecting, right? It's like, oh, the idea that the system is rigged and needs to be overthrown, which, you know, existed in some circles, is not what the main political parties were saying. Yeah, Anwar. Is that just because um, that line of thinking is absent of the perspectives of the people still experiencing a very dichotomous worldview, uh, that being like the oppressed and the oppressors? So they still think there's conflict. They still think that there are things to be done. They don't think there is a triumph. I... So is that view just absent that perspective? It, it, it is... Um... It is somewhat absent that perspective. Um, then there also is sort of like, yes, there's still oppression. Yes, there's still marginalization. What prescriptions do we have? The drug of communism has poisoned every. It's like that's a bad. That that's not the prescription. There needs to be more liberal democracy. So like the, 
the exclusion, the oppression is not because the system is terrible, but like it's people aren't being included in the right way. So, I mean, one of the reasons for um, for crime bills um, and many of the like legislative architects of them, it's like, well, the black community is being decimated by crime. The crime is killing lots and lots of African American folks, and there were a lot of black legislators who like supported and wrote the legislation because of what it did to communities. So as opposed to being like, oh, mass incarceration is leading to violence. It was like, we need mass incarceration to protect communities. Does that focus on individual versus system? So like, oh, if the individuals just are not on welfare or are are not committing crime, instead of like poverty has put people in positions where they need to commit crime, focus off of poverty, focus on to people's response to poverty. So, like, is this a shift to individual versus, like, systemic in the 70s and 80s? I think think somewhat, but um, the real way to answer that is actually to, like, okay, so what were people on the left saying? What were these, like, to go to the literature to be, like, what actually? Because I could see systematic critiques that it would have existed in the 1990s that don't look like Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016. Um, that ha- just have a, have, a, have a different flavor to kind of like overarching that could be very systems thinking um, that would blame systems um, but would not say the answer is socialism because socialism has been disproven. So what other answers might there be? Is that a little clear? I just wondered, like, uh, what is the key difference between the neoliberalism of the 90s and the you know, the fiscal conservatism of the 80s. And also, why is it that the GOP continually acts like it is the party of Bernie Sanders when it is the party of Bill Clinton? <laughs> um, hmm. I don't think I can answer the second one. In terms of the difference between the... So this is why it was third way. Um, so Democ- the, neo- like the economic neoliberalism of the 1990s um, would reject... Um, some of the like po- some of Reagan's policies of the 1980s. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to think of specific examples. Um, they would they would say things like to prevent outsourcing. They would say like outsourcing is bad and American corporations shouldn't be encouraged to outsource. We should have tax incentives to keep jobs at home, and we should also make sure that we invest in tech training to really support the workers that are being suffered from it. So it's like, here's a systematic answer to a problem that is caused by the capitalist system. So they would have a critique of it, whereas I think the right would have less of that critique. And the right's answer was often like, people need to buy American cars. Like, GM won't be shipping cars overseas if people were just buying American cars. Nikwisi. This may be somewhat disconnected, but I'm really curious how like Y2K could factor into this and like whether that's a dystopian ideology, whether that's like more connected to like preventative measures, um, yeah, things like that. I have um, Y2K on a slide in like three slides. So cool. And this is, this is the this is I think the good a good opportunity to, to change from so, so so to go from the end of Cold War, the supposed end of history. So one um, quote, um, so this is from the bottom of the first page of the end of history, um, but I'll show it on the slide instead, for how Fukuyama and folks like him then link this to culture as well. So in fact, that what 
Fukuyama is saying is this phenomenon being the triumph of, of, of liberal economics and liberal politics, this triumph, this phenomenon, exists beyond high politics. It can also be seen in the inelectable, um, which means kind of inevitable, going everywhere, not able to be stopped, spread of consumerist Western culture in such diverse contexts, and this gets to Spencer's thing about what about, well, peasants' markets, color television sets now omnipresent throughout China, Cooperative restaurants and clothing stores opened last year in Moscow. The Beethoven piped into Japanese department stores. And the rock music enjoyed alike in Prague, Rangoon, and Tehran. So, um, rock music. Uh, American pop culture. Um, I do remember lots of things about blue jeans. um, And uh, people in the Soviet bloc not having access to blue jeans... Um, and blue jeans being a sign of freedom on the march. Um, and in fact, a French social philosopher, uh, Régis Debray, says there was more power in blue jeans and rock and roll than the entire Red Army. Stewardess? The people on the flight that uh, serve you. Um, yeah. yeah, stewardess. Uh, and, you know, back in the day and going to Russia, and her on the flight would pack, jam everything they could with blue jeans because once they got to Moscow, they got to play and just make hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars per pair of blue jeans. No, she was, yeah, she was like, oh no, they fucking with their blue jeans. <laughs> yeah. It's a symbol of freedom. So I think it's interesting to, to, to think about or, or transition to, okay, but what was rock after the triumph? Um, and so th- this is setting up the 90s as, like, optimistic or pessimistic. Um, so, uh, like, brief detour um, to, to our own home, a reminder that Nirvana practiced right there. Um, there's a clip on YouTube of Nirvana from the Evergreen State College television studio, like, right there playing. Um, uh, Kurt Cobain grew up in Aberdeen. Um, he did not attend Evergreen. He had lots of friends who did. Uh, one of his friends was one of the founders of the uh, Riot Girl movement. Folks know about Riot Girl music in the 90s. I mean, hopefully this is, like, deeply ingrained in your blood as, like, even if you hate it, like, this is where we're here. With three R's. Three R's. That sounds less familiar, but... So, so more Kathleen Hanna was a yeah. friend of Kurt Cobain. She graduated Evergreen. Um, she wrote on uh, one of his walls at one point um, that Kurt smells like teen spirit. Um, she meant the deodorant. Uh, apparently, Kurt Cobain claims that he didn't know what the deodorant was, and he thought it was linked to the kinds of conversations they had about anarchism, the kinds of conversations they had about um, social inequality, and about um, the decadence and oppressiveness of American consumer culture. So it's also really interesting to think about, like, rock and roll is like, ah, American freedom. And then rock and rollers are like, this freedom has me feeling left out. Matthew. Is that where uh, Kurt Cobain got the, uh, the title of uh, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit? Yes, it was written on his, door, or on his apartment door by an evergreen grad. So I just, like... So he turned that into the lyrics of a song that they were jamming about. Um, and so this is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll show briefly that I, I got lots of different um, 
articles from the Cooper Point Journal um, uh, from the 1990s, which um, there's this whole thing about like the new strategic plan for Evergreen, um, which then in uh, this issue, there's lots of um, discussion. Well, one, discussion of uh, Evergreen or alien abductees. Um, here's, so Bruce Smith, uh, that's, he, he had 34 offspring with that alien that he drew. Um, maybe, maybe one of those offspring is now a student here. Um, I, I did think that there was lots of, th- th- this critique of Evergreen's strategic plan I found really interesting um, because of how like relevant it seems today um, that like the assumption that just cooperative teaching will spread cul- se- cultural sensitivity and knowledge can be exploitative People of color sometimes get tired of always being the teachers once again. Victims are made to be responsible for solving the problems caused by the dominant culture. I mean, this is like intersectional theory, like lived in, you know, in, in critiques of Evergreen's model then. Um, anyway, lots of, lots of interesting stuff on that. Super secret panel hides the truth about UFOs. Um, Amnesty International oops, uh, defends human rights. So, I mean, one, one place that, you know, the left really went was a full-scale um, doubling down on human rights violations um, and how, how exploitative and how destructive things are. So, like, um, there, you know, there's lots of systematic critiques that wasn't the solution is socialism. That wasn't the solution. Um, this is neat. Everything everywhere is political. Oh, I did want to show, especially Nathalie, this. Open Door Lecture and Film Series. Um, maybe some of you also took Nancy Koppelman's class with Nathalie. She was a, she was a student at the time here, and uh, she wrote about um, Evergreen. And if you know Nancy, this is so funny. Evergreen is so fractured. Um, we need to have a, a central schedule of program lectures and files that are open to the community, films that are open to the community, uh, respect the integrity of the program, stay for the whole thing, don't, don't leave. Um, but then everything, everything was political. There's TV coverage. Um, and, but then here is a little um, coverage of Nirvana. Um, and I, I think it's, it's funny. Um, my favorite part of this, what's, the only thing like I'm lifting this up is just like how um, everyone in the Olympia community like, would, would know Nirvana. Um, uh, and so it's, it's very offhanded. Um, the album sells for way too much in Seattle. And then here's the press kit. Nirvana consists of uh, Kurt with a D and two Ks, Cobain, extreme less, basis, Chris Novolacek, and not of ex-drummer Chad Channing. So that the, the publicity photo they had was with the old drummer um, who stopped touring with them as they instead brought in a new drummer, Dave Scream. There was a punk band in the area, Scream, uh, that's Dave Grohl. Um, no, 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 no. It, 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 it's the same guy. Dave Scream is Dave Grohl. How does the abolitionist narrative of like the the talks that you were talking about with Kurt Cobain? How does that fit within the idea of like socialism has failed? If abolitionism is still a thing, like what after abolition? What what would the alternative? Do you get what I'm saying? What did that look like? I, I think I think so. Um, 
or was it just an opposition to the rest of the ideological uh, support of capitalism? Um, I want to just keep mulling on it. Or I want you to keep mulling on it. Um, so uh, here's another thing. There's, an, there's another issue where there's a review of the concert that they have um, in Olympia um, that's like, it was a good show, but it was way too popular. Too many screaming teenage punk rockers. Nirvana mania. Um, poorly dressed record executives to step away from New Lincoln Continentals, handing out diamond-studded uh, cards. Um, so there's a little bit of... Um, uh, what's the right word? Um, cynicism about, like, oh, even Nirvana is too popular. Um, so this is where I wanted to just have us think some about um, pop music, pop culture of the 1990s as um, moving between two poles of optimism and pessimism. Um, that either, like, everything is great or, like, well, socialism might have failed and we're not going to advocate for socialism, but, boy, American culture sure, sure is oppressive, sure is dominating, um, sure makes us feel left out. I mean, you know, the, the lyrics, did I read out the lyrics of Tell, Smells Like Teen Spirit? The first stanza is, Load up on guns, bring your friends. It's fun to lose and to pretend. She's overboard and self-assured. Oh, no, I know a dirty word. Listen to the actual song, don't listen to me. Um, like, terrible representative of, of Nirvana. Um, definitely don't listen to me. But, like, boy, American culture, sure. Like, that's not, so, if, so I would just ask you, is Nirvana an example of optimism or pessimism about the future? You'd probably say pessimism. Okay, I want to do this with a couple of other acts. Okay, so, in a different note, the Backstreet Boys, are they optimistic about the world or pessimistic about the world? Optimistic. Tupac Shakur, optimistic about the world or pessimistic? Pessimistic. Boys to men, optimistic or pessimistic? Rage against the machine. Celine Dion. Optimistic. My heart will go on. My heart will go on. Does anyone know the band Garbage? Gar one of Garbage's big singles, I'm only happy when it rains. I only know that they did the bond, the song for one of... Pierce Brosnan's last Bond movie. Which the one did they do? What is it? The world is not enough. The world is not enough. Optimistic or pessimistic? I mean, in any other context, I would say pessimistic, but as an American, that's very optimistic. <laughs> uh, I, 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 got, I, got, I got some really... Like, the more I thought about it, the more fun it became. Like, Marilyn Manson. Pessimistic. Creed. Kind of a like Christian rock band, sort of like Creed is like, uh, Ari, are you? <laughs> so like the point is not that there's one or the other. It's just that like I feel like there was a lot of disaffection um, and a lot of like hopeful optimism. So I, I, I came up with another, another couple of examples of this, um, just of like dichotomies about the future. 
So I don't know if you're a big action movie fan from the 80s and the 90s, but in the original Terminator, that is a bad vision of the future. Arnold Schwarzenegger comes back to try and kill Sarah Connor because she's going to have a son, John Connor, who will be the leader of the human resistance army to the... So, you know, they're... AI led the robots to, um, uh, to launch nuclear strikes against all of humanity and to try and seek to exterminate humanity. Uh, John Connor is the only hope. And, um, boy, that is a, a, a negative film. In, 2000, in, in 1991, Terminator 2, Arnold Schwarzenegger comes back as the hero. And, in fact, he is the robot that learns to care for John Connor, learns to care for human life, doesn't actually kill anybody, John Connor, the kid, uh, Eddie Furlong, tells him, like, he can't kill anybody, so he only shoots police officers in the knees. Um, and, um, the, you know, there is no fate but what we make. So 1980s, it's like the future is terrible. 1990s, it's like, well, there might be nuclear war and robots might be trying to kill us, but some of the robots can learn to love deep in their hearts. Um, there's, been a, there's a new, um, new-ish uh, HBO documentary about Woodstock 1999, So there were two festivals to celebrate Woodstock's 25th anniversary and 30th anniversary, 1994. There was lots of, like, peace and love and harmony, and it was, like, not a greatly run festival, but it it certainly emphasized the peace, love, and harmony. Woodstock 1999 is, like, this dystopian vision of people, like, tearing things down, setting stuff on fire, dancing in mud. Is that the one with, like, the acid? Like, I hear stuff about, like, Woodstock and... I might be... Maybe there might have been bad drugs. There's there's a great documentary. I just remember like a, a, an idea of like a Woodstock or maybe the Woodstock and like people losing their mind in mud and, and yes. that being like it, it, yes, like that image you're saying. I'm like I feel like I have a specific thing of it, just and no reference. <laughs> there was much more of that in 1999, like bonfires and real like media coverage of it is like Lord of the Flies. People are turning against each other. Yeah, Kai. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is a question. Like, um, what what did these depictions do for politics? I think it's. I'm I'm trying to, to show that there was like. There was a lot of optimism and there was a lot of ambivalence, and it didn't map neatly onto the political parties. That there's a lot of like. That, that Bill Clinton is the boy from hope um, uh, and that technology can make the way. And so another thing I have down here is there was all this conversation of the Internet as the inter- information superhighway. It would lead us as the bridge to the 21st century. That might have been another, like, campaign slogan of Clinton in 1996. We need to, like, get on the bridge to the 21st century. But then Noquisi asked about Y2K. We're all going to die. Like... The computers are not going to understand the difference of 99 to 00. They're going to, every, all computer systems are going to go back to 000. Um, the bug is going to knock out power plants. Airlines are going to crash. It's going to be mass hysteria. So, like, tons and tons of coders spent lots of lots of time to actually fix the problem. But the idea of, like, the future is really, really dark with Y2K is contrasted with, like, the information superhighway. Um, I keep being this idea of like it, it, it's like we have all this because you said you talk about utopian things and all I can think of it's like we're stuck in this like utopian thinking, but it's not like utopian thinking from the start of like a communist scene. It's utopian thinking at the start of like a horror movie about a family. Like I, I just keep thinking about like 
of, of that. And then, like, I don't watch a lot of horror, but just that they have, like, horror being, like, ruining the family. Like, that, you know, that comes up a lot. So I'm just keep thinking that... that Pleasantville. Like our, you, Pleasantville. Like, like, all, like, society gets really... Like, we're all going to be so homogenous. We're all going to be in cookie-cutter little boxes. No one's going to fit in. So it's like, yeah, it's positive, but, like, ooh. No, queasy. Just as a interesting connection that I'm just thinking of, um, Octavia Butler, Parable of the Sower. Yes. I think that a lot of people are like, oh my goodness, she predicted like so much and we're so close to it, but it seems like that narrative was just so much more common than we yes. often think about. Yes. Yes, and at the same time, like Octavia Butler didn't get the recognition during her lifetime that she's gotten since. So, like, there's a, there's a lot of, like, where was mainstream culture not listening to Parable of the Sower? Matthew. You said uh, Pleasant Phil. Yeah. And I want to note that uh, uh, there was a movie in 1998 called Pleasant Phil with uh, Kirsten Dunst and Tobey Maguire. And isn't, like, part of it in black and white and parts of it in color? Yeah. In the form of color and like the mom orgasms in in the in the bathtub and that causes the tree to both catch on fire and gain color and so people start they, like they have no colored sign. <laughs> it's not subtle. It's, it's not good. subtle. <laughs> it, and like uh, you know, it's, and it's a popular critique. So also like I'm I'm not wanting to I'm not wanting to overstate the like that everyone agreed with the end of history. It's just interesting how that framing really has to shape everything. Like. History is over. The future is now. What's the future going to be? So another example I have. I see your hand, Evan. Um, like The Matrix. I, I, I was thinking about the, the, these two films within two, like two months of each other. The Matrix and Phantom Menace. That like um, weirdly, The Matrix is the one where like technology has constrained us. Humans are enslaved to robots. We need to break out of it. And there will be a savior who will come. And, like, at the end, Neo triumphs, he flies out, like, the oppression of the machines is going to be over. The Matrix has, like, an optimistic story arc and is one of the, like, dark, gritty... It's, like, not a great picture of the future. The Phantom Menace is, like, this little boy, Anakin Skywalker, is going to be Darth Vader and kill a lot of people. Like, it's, like, a bad narrative arc, but that movie is bright, it's colorful, the pod race scene is fun... It's like there's all this bright, I don't know, it's just really interesting to read, like, the narratives and then the aesthetics. Like, yeah, very much a spectacle, which The Matrix is, too. So there's just, I feel like there was this, people's minds were being torn in multiple different directions. Is this tracking, folks? Evan. Okay. Firstly, Matrix is overrated and Phantom <laughs> is a guilty pleasure. But, uh... I'm just wondering, like, it's vaguely connected to information superhighway and, yeah. like, how we think of the internet... Uh, when do you think definitively we came to like what is now called the post-fact world, where the facts are what you, you know, what you or your party believes? Um, uh, we talked some about that in week two or three or four. Um, I think there's a real artifact of the the Bush years. I was talking about like the post postmodernism and relativism, and like when you know. Um, uh, so I, I would say mid 2000s and then and then people are really citing the like the 20 teens the mid 20 teens as being the start of a real different like information um accuracy network or dichotomy i saw another hand 
Okay, cool. Okay, uh, I'm mindful of the time. Um, so the last thing I wanted to end with um, was just another one of these examples. I saw this on social media, and I love, I love the image. Um, yes. So they're bringing back um, um, Scott Neal, right? Sam uh, Neal. Sam Neal, Jeff Goldblum, and Laura Dern. Um, they're bringing the original cast back. Um, but so just like Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs break out. They eat a lot of people. Like technology has cloned dinosaurs. That was a huge mistake. Shouldn't have happened. But at the same time, like the catchphrase, like the main thing is like life finds a way. There's, some, there's like real hope in Jurassic Park, and it's just bright and gorgeous, and the, the, the images, I mean, even the nighttime scenes of the T-Rex. Yeah, 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 it's a literal amusement park. Where are we in 2020? It's Jurassic World Dominion. I can't even see their faces. Jeff and you can't is even so see sexy, right. and I couldn't recognize him. <laughs> right, like, where's the future in 2022? It's like, oh, this is not good. Like, there's not a lot of, like, the future is good happening right now in our culture. This is tracking, yeah. The oh, giant T-Rex. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on like how much this kind of polarizing, like utopian, dystopian outlook towards the future is like tied to either the age of the people who are creating the media mm. or the age of the people that it's directed towards. Like I I don't know, I guess I'm just thinking about like adolescent psychology and development and like is the more pessimistic narrative directed towards, you know, adolescents and emerging adults who are more, like, geared towards activism and change and, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I, like, uh, my, my historian hat is all, all, often, like, um, what I was saying is, like, I'm not being comprehensive. This is just, like, looking at some change over time and looking at some, some snapshots and examples that are illustrating the, the broader trend. But I think that that's, like, a real strength of the Generation Disaster book, uh, like, focusing on, like, no, who were the people who saw 1989 as this, like, breaking point? Who was raised in an environment where it's, like, we're triumphant and you can have any toy you want so long as your parents save the right money for it and you ask them to get you the right Tickle Me Elmo and not the knockoff one? Um, so, yeah, I, I like the... I, not a comprehensive actor. I like the question. To build off of what Janet was sharing, too, to see that there was, like, the end of this enemy, this them in the distance that we had as America, and then constructing, like, we, well, we need an enemy. Who's, who's going to be the enemy now? Who do we fight in creating in our own society? Well, these people are trying to create dystopia with their political beliefs, and the other side mm. pointing against us and them somehow created in culture. Yeah. Trying to push advancement through that. Yeah. And creating this sort of facade of an enemy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. us is that, and that's kind of linked to evan's question too is like when did americans become i mean americans have always thought that other americans are the enemy that's not new but there's like there is a new texture to it it seems much more ingrained for sure yeah 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 and i guess i'm just thinking like is there something in the way people age and develop that would make them mm. more committed to mm. a feeling of like we won and now I'm, like, coasting through to the end of my life versus when you're, like, emerging, you're, like, building your own world and emerging into adulthood. Like, are you less committed to feeling like you made it? Yeah. You still want to fight? Yeah. It's kind of a baby boomer question, too. Okay, I'm mindful of time. I think we should leave it there. Um, so we'll see you after lunch. We'll come back to watch a depiction of the future with Star Trek. Um, thank you all. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. 
If you're interested in hearing more history, check out our latest podcast, First Ladies, in their own words, using material from C-SPAN's award-winning biography series, First Ladies, and source material from C-SPAN's video library, you'll listen to First Spouses, addressing issues important to them and the country. The program includes eight First Ladies, from Lady Bird Johnson to Melania Trump. Find First Ladies, in their own words, wherever you get your podcasts.